chapter 6, verse 3 and following. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understanding nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So, Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher. I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us today, and that your grace would be given to us in a way that we might be able to walk in the truths that we're reading. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, maybe you cannot hear it, but that little echo that is coming on the stage, Daniel, is going to really take my mind in a different place. Are y'all hearing that like I am? Yeah, they're saying either fix that or they're coming back there for you. <laughs> All right, so let's walk through this text and see if we can um, really gain the insights and the treasures from it. And just making some statements from the text itself. Authentic Christian teaching is exclusive to the Bible and promotes godly lives. That's what you know to be authentic. Is it true from the Bible, and is it evident in the lives that are being transformed? So Christian teaching, as you and I know in today's culture, comes in various forms. It comes with spoken words, and it comes in words that are saying from platforms and from podiums, and it will be even be in the classrooms that are going on afterwards in life group. And in many other places, there are lots of different venues for which Christian teaching is being talked about. To attract more people, often churches and preachers will do things that seem a little bit strange. For example, it's pretty popular for churches to have what they call at the movies, where they claim that uh, movies and church can meet and each week they'll meet together, they'll show a movie, and they'll talk about some powerful things of God. But of course, the notion that Dr. Seuss or the Grinch who stole Christmas is going to teach us any doctrine of God is absolutely foolish. Why would you go to a movie when you've got the authoritative word of God that has been entrusted to you? Just hang out in God's word is what I'm thinking. But there is a temptation for us to be relevant as a church. But oftentimes, relevance is not being talked about in a, in a teaching of timeless truths that is transformational to the hearts of people, but instead, they're talking about pastors wearing skinny jeans and a t-shirt in a worship-style concert that goes on on a weekly basis and in a way that is communicated that people might be encouraged rather than convicted. Now, you can call me old school if you want to, 
but I'm going to be an ambassador of Jesus Christ with his treasured word that has been given to me, and I'm going to look the part. I'm not going to come in here and wear clothes that I wear when I'm out at a ball game. I'm going to present myself and this truth as being God's authoritative word. Anybody else with me on that? That we come in this place believing that we are worshiping and serving the king of kings and that we are declaring a word from the king of the universe. I want to make sure that I'm presenting it in such a way that you believe that Sunday morning is all about a concert sure but the concert is an audience of one and it's Jesus Christ I'm singing to him I'm hoping that people around me are listening to me sing because I'm trying to sing words that will encourage them but I'm moving right past them to the king of the universe who I know is my savior and lord and I want to sing to him and I want to worship him and I want to proclaim truths about him and we will proclaim God's word here not in a way that's encouraging although it probably will but that's not my ultimate purpose my my ultimate pur purpose is to teach truth and let the power of the Holy Spirit and the authoritative word of God hit its mark and change my heart and change your heart and the heart of every person who's listening. We want to be focused there. We want Christ to be the one who is making the move into the hearts of people. So we have our struggles too. I could be pointing out to other churches and what I think they may not be doing right, but I need to be pointing back to me. What is it in my leadership? What is it in this church that you and I struggle with that might be uh, forsaking the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, it could be when we elevate religious or cultural traditions above the Word of God. And we don't let God's Word take its root in our lives. Let's just say that culture and tradition is not going to be first and the Scripture second at Meadowbrook. We want the word of God to be first in every aspect of our living. It could be that a political worldview gets lifted and above that which is a biblical worldview. Can we just say we're going to put down the political worldviews and we're going to hold closely to God's word so that it becomes the worldview in which we see things. We want God's word to be what is driving us. Or it could be that we would exchange temporary treasures for that which is eternal treasure, riches that are stored up in heaven. And that would subjugate the work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to elevate that which is true and right and noble and pure and those riches that are all withstanding throughout eternity. We want to elevate those things and seek those things rather than the temporary things of the world. So Meadowbrook, our platforms and our teaching and our music and our living must be central to the Word of God. And let that be what drives people. So I know this is a holiday weekend, and I know there are a lot of people traveling, and I know ball games have cranked up again, and I see a few empty seats around the house. We could probably have half again as many people who are here, but I'm not changing course. I'm not changing what we do, and you're not wanting me to change what we do. We're going to hang out in God's Word, and we're going to teach God's Word. And when you go to life group, your life group leader is going to say, open your Bible to God's Word, and we're going we're to focus on this truth for our living. And we're going to follow after the Word of God hard. The Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders before uh, things got shaky as they are now he forewarned them in acts 20 luke records it this way i did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of god 
Hey, shrinking preachers skip difficult passages, but the whole counsel of God's word is going book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Not one, two, skip a few. Uh, that's going to be a little bit difficult. Let's just skip over that one. No, no, that's a shrinking pastor. That's a shrinking ministry. And I can tell you that it's a shrinking church. You say, well, they can grow big churches when they teach in topical ways. I'm not talking about numbers. I'm talking about my heart, my mind, my life, my, my discipleship, and yours as well. A shrinking church doesn't look to the whole counsel of God's word. We want to be strong. We want to be tall in God's word, and we want to be uh, given to God's word. So here's what Paul says to the elders at, at Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Time out there for a moment before I finish that little section. What he's saying there is, hey, this church that you're serving, you're leading, you're overseeing, that's not your church. That church was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That church belongs to him. And you better make sure you take care of what belongs to him. He's placing you as an under-shepherd over the congregation that you might see where to take them, what to feed them, how they need rest, how they need encouragement, how they need protection. Make sure you're caring for them. And before you think the enemy is coming from the outside, he says to the elders at Ephesus, the enemy might just be you. So watch how you care for the flock. Watch yourselves and watch the whole flock because they belong to God. Oversee them well. Take care for the church which he obtained with his own blood. So the purpose of being an overseer is to care for the church that belongs to Jesus Christ and has been purchased by the amazing blood of Christ that cleanses us, restores us to the way that God has created us and gives us the mission and the empowered mission that God has called us to. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Be alert. Meadowbrook, you should always be alert. You ought to be alert about me, Measure every word that I say to God's holy word. You ought to be alert about every other overseer we have. And when I'm dead and gone, you be alert for the people that you have in authority over you. Check and measure to see if their life and their words match the words of the Bible. And we should expect that of each other. We should encourage each other to walk in those kind of truths. So Paul had previously warned the elder, elders about the very difficult place that they find themselves in right now. And the reason why Paul has put Timothy as the elder of that church to take care of those problems. In other words, calling out and getting rid of those pastors who are actually false teachers, those elders who are false teachers, get them out of the, the place of leadership and you bring again God's holy word to this church so he's warning them ahead of time that that was going to happen and that they were going to be the issue and now it has and that's the whole reason why Paul has written this letter to Timothy so as he's nearing the conclusion of the letter he mentions again about the false teachers now he does this six times in this six chapter letter this is not a big letter right it's, it has lasted throughout time. It is certainly encouraging to all the churches. 
not just the church at Ephesus, but over and over and over, beginning in chapter one and now twice in chapter six, he's gonna bring up the subject again about false teachers. So I don't mind telling you as the one who's teaching it, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, I'm thinking, Lord, can we just not talk about false teachers again? But he says, no, this is important because the truth is important. And you and I need to protect truth at all times. That's the reason why we are careful what we're listening to. Careful for those people who proclaim to be speaking on behalf of God. Careful those who are claiming to teach the Bible. Careful for those who are singing what they call Christian music. We ought to be careful about all of that. And Jesus is wanting us to know over and over and over through his inspiration by spirit through the apostle Paul six times I'm mentioning this because it's emphatic so according to the Bible Meadowbrook can't measure our success based on the number of people that we have showing up on any given Sunday in any given season the measure of success in the preaching teaching ministry of the church is by the transformational truth that is impacting the lives of people that is evident in their day-by-day living that's how we measure things And that's how the Spirit of God is measuring things. And one day when we stand before the Lord over his church, he's going to say, did you have transformational teaching? Did you proclaim my truth and let my Holy Spirit, who's the Spirit of truth, impact your words that you were reading from my text? Did you let it impact people? Did you guard it at all times? And I pray that we will be able to say yes. So as a pastor, as a teacher, or various teachers in this place, or life group leaders, make sure you're hanging true to God's holy word. All right, so first out of the gate, it's authentic Christian teaching is exclusive to the Bible. We're not teaching somebody else's words, we're teaching the Bible. We're not teaching about some subjects, we're teaching the subjects of the Bible. We're letting the Bible lay over the subjects of our living and measuring our life by that and according our life to it. So authentic Christian teaching is rooted in the Bible and it's evident in godly living. You know that you have authentic Bible intake when you have authentic Christian living. Secondly, disingenuous teachers promote untruths for personal gains. This is according to Paul, and he lists these identifiable marks of a false teacher in verse 4. And I'm going to tell you, he doesn't mince words here. He says, number one, they're puffed up with conceit. Secondly, they do a lot of talking, but they understand nothing. And third, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Now, you look at those three characteristics of a false teacher, and you'd say, man, that's the opposite of Jesus. That's the opposite of what I know about Christ and the way Christ is. For Christ is full of truth. He's full of humility, and he's full of love for others. So that kind of pastor and elder can't be filled with the Spirit, can't be filled with the Spirit of Christ, not filled with Him. Thereby, he makes the church life miserable because there's woundedness along the way because of conceit and lacking understanding and lacking love, creating quarrels and controversies so that he can be in the middle of that. So Paul lists the miserable experiences by 
the church at the hands of such sinful pastors. Here, here's what the church experiences. This is sort of the product of what a false teacher in a church leadership position will bring. He will produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind. Listen to these captures. Depraved in mind and deprived of truth. Depraved and deprived. Depraved means you're still in that unregenerate state. Your mind is still filled with sinfulness. And it's, it's depraved because it has not been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It hasn't been transformed. So the false teacher is not leading people to the truth of the gospel. He's leading th people to the, the opposite of that. In fact, what they were dealing with mostly at the church of Ephesus is aestheticism. It's, uh, oh, if you'll just put these disciplines in your life, then, then you can have salvation. And weirdly as it was, that means you can't eat these certain foods and you really shouldn't even get married. You should abstain from the privileges of marriage and all that marriage affords you. Now, of course, what has God said? God says, you can eat everything you want. What I have called clean, you shouldn't call unclean. And from the very beginning, the Lord said, get married leave your father and your mother and cleave together and be fruitful and multiply this is from the very beginning it's a beautiful picture of of God's gospel to us in Christ Jesus but yet here's people who are not leading others to the gospel and said if you put these disciplines in your life and abstain from things that that you enjoy then you can be saved well that's utterly ridiculous isn't it but you and I have to be careful about that we'll put restrictions on people as well if you want to please God, then you ought to have no alcohol. You ever heard that? If you want to please God, you won't go fishing on Sunday. Those are the two things that I grew up with. You can't drink, and you can't go fishing on Sunday. I don't know where the fishing on Sunday came in, but maybe it's Peter there at the lake after he rejected Christ, denied Christ. I don't know where that came in. I just might go fishing today just because, right? <laughs> But you and I, can, in, our, in our traditions, can place things over people that God didn't say. And we can communicate something that is other than the gospel truth. And we can lead people away from what is true and saving grace. And we can tell them that if they'll just put this in their life and don't do that and make sure you're doing this, then God will be pleased with you and you'll be saved. Hogwash, God is pleased with one and his name is Jesus Christ and he took upon our sin on himself that he might die with it there, paying the justice of God for our own sin so that he might be resurrected and give us a new way of living and in that, by faith, we live and God is pleased. You can't do anything and please God without faith. And so we want to make sure that we're pointing people to faith and not creating this division among the church and leaving people in the depravity of their minds and lives. Now notice the progression of Romans 10. Romans 10 is one of those passages we love to go to, and rightfully so. It's one of the greatest in all the, the New Testament if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that tells us the structure of our salvation is believing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's master, he's the Lord over us, and we are his servants, and that God has raised him from the dead in order that we might be saved by our faith in God who has commissioned his son to die on our stead. And Christ freely does that. And so with that faith, we are justified. It's always been that way from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today. We are always justified when our faith is in God, who is our Redeemer and Reconciler. But it goes further in, in chapter 10, verse 14. How then can we call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So if people are going to be saved, it's most often because somebody has proclaimed God's word. Now, sure, they can read God's word uh, themselves, and God has certainly brought them to his word. That's the way they're saved. But most often, it's one person proclaiming to another God's word. It's me reading God's word to them, quoting God's word to them, or you doing the same. And that's how we come to salvation. We, we hear the word of God, or we read the word of God, and we move towards the word of God. So verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. So pray that Meadowbrook and our leadership will always be doctrinally whole. That is, we will always be rooted in the scripture and the truths of scripture, the understanding of true scripture, speaking and living the truth in love so that people come to faith and life in Jesus. Pray that we will always be that and never be short of that. Pray that we won't try to put gimmicks together we won't try to put some kind of squirreliness together pray that we're not seeking the crowd pray that we're honoring to Christ who has given us his word and we're declaring the word of Christ in our life and in our mouth pray that we will always be that and protect that you say Randy we're always going to be that oh that's what the church at Ephesus thought too and Paul warned them you better be careful it's going to be you. There will be people that will rise up from amongst you that will lead others astray. And now here it is, six times over and over and over, he's saying, Timothy, this has got to stop. You've got to be the one to stop it. So Paul identifies the motive of false teachers, and here it is. It's at the end of verse 5. They imagine that godliness will bring gain to them. Now that's true, godliness will bring gain. But Paul is saying it's the attempt to godliness in other ways than the gospel that these false teachers are gonna get their gain. Now in other words, what they're gonna try to proclaim is if you do this or you stay away from that, then you'll be godly. And their motive is going to be personal gain temporary gain so the false teachers are downplaying or outright denying the gospel the atoning work of Christ Jesus and instead they claim spiritual depth and access can come from those who heed the teachings of the false leaders regardless of whether they're aligning with the teachings of Christ they are proclaiming things saying that if you will do these things 
then you will be godly. Of course, they have disconnected from the Holy Scripture of God, and they proclaim that they have insights that are worthy to be accepted and lived, so worthy that you ought to be generous in your giving to them for giving you those insights. It's a personal gain thing. And man, you can turn on TBN today, and you can see a bunch of hoaxes out there, can't you? You can see a bunch of false teachers who are proclaiming something other than the true scripture and the true gospel and their whole, the whole motive is that they can get rich. They'll tell you how they need a plane. They'll tell you how they need a new mansion. They'll tell you how great they are. It's all about personal gain. I don't know why people have a struggle seeing that, but they do. Listen, you and I need to make sure that we are careful because the false teachers have subtle words sometimes, and sometimes they're blatant, but they are all self-inclined. They're very skillful preachers. They'll claim to help you to know how to speak in an unknown tongue, gain a greater spiritual depth and insight, and have a unique access to God if you'll just hear their words and instruction and begin to do them and be generous along the way. Might as well be selling snake oil because it's all a hoax. You don't need any special insights. You don't need any greater access. You don't need any other language. You have God's holy word that has been written to you. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God who is your teacher, who will illuminate this word in your life like it's a light to your path. You have all you need right here. I appreciate you paying my salary though. but I'm not here to get rich off you. I'm not here for temporary treasure. I'm here because of an eternal call of God. And I trust that not only will he provide my family's needs, but that he is storing up for me riches in heaven because I'm gonna hang true to this word. That's for all of us. Just be people of the word. So the motive is personal gain. Now, frighteningly so, it's demonically empowered, right? Because we've already read that. That this is a doctrine of demons that has been moved into deceived hearts and now being propagated to the church through their elders who have a very motive to get rich. So according to Paul, we can identify false teachers because their words don't align with the teachings of Christ Jesus, the doctrines of the Bible. Their ministry and their teachings do not result in godliness of the hearers. They are arrogant, not understanding the scripture. They are divisive and propagate division among the congregation, and they are hungry for personal gain. All right, so then he flips it in verse 6. He spends the first few verses there identifying what's wrong, but then he identifies, now here's what's right. Here's what you want to move towards. And he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness and contentment are the marks of authentic Christianity and Christian leadership. 
So people richly gain when they are content in their salvation and with God's provision for their lives. One writer wrote it well this way, the richest person is the one who does not need anything else. No matter the level of income, no matter the level of treasury, the richest person says, I've got enough. God has provided. In other words, the richest person is the one who desires the least. Just come to a place of contentment. The book of Proverbs expresses it well, saying, give me neither poverty or riches Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Lord, just give me what's needed. That's what the Proverbs writer is saying. I don't need riches, I'll deny you. I'll walk away from you because I won't need you. I don't need poverty because I'll break your law and I'll profane your name. Lord, just provide for my needs. It's partly the reason why Kay and I pause before we eat. It's just the two of us. We just pause. We need to pause to remember that what is provided to us, the food, the opportunity to hold the hand of the one I love and eat the meal together is a good provision from God above. And so we still stop and pray and thank God for the provision because we recognize if he didn't provide it, it would not be given It's a good practice for us all to be in. A godly person lives for the glory of God and makes his goodness known. Therefore, that person is content, having learned to trust God in his love and in his gracious provision because he is a good father. One of the highlights of my ministry is being able to counsel young couples who are going to be married And then the privilege of actually doing their marriage. I still give traditional vows, lead them to give traditional vows when they're together, facing one another. A couple is typically standing, holding each other's hand, making a vow to each other, which means that they will take the other for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health till death do us part. And what they're proclaiming in that moment is a sacred vow to each other, but it's also a statement of contentment. What they're saying to one another is, my life is going to be better with you, whether we are rich or poor, whether we're sick or healthy, whether we live better or worse, until we die, I'm given to you, and my life is better for it. They're content. A discontent would be something like this. I'm going to keep you as long as things are better than they are if I weren't with you. A discontent is I'll keep you and I'll be yours. You'll be mine as long as you're healthy. That's discontent. Nobody goes into the marriage that I know of, at least they won't verbalize it to me, with a holy discontent. No, it's a holy contentment that God is provided and that you are part of that provision and I trust God whether we're sick or healthy, rich or poor, better or worse, I trust God and I want to live my life with you. There's a link and I can show it to you in Hebrews if we had time. There's a link with contentment in life and contentment with your spouse. 
holy contentment is evident in the way you treat your spouse. Maybe we just need to let that settle for a moment. Is there a discontent in your marriage with your spouse that God is saying, oh, it's way bigger than that person. It's your heart. Is there a discontent that would actually show that you have a discontent with God? That you're not fully satisfied in the provision that he has given to you? Would the Spirit of God say, hey, we need to talk about that some more? Would the Spirit of God say, you need to agree with me on this? Would the Spirit of God be saying that because he wants to give you freedom, that he wants joy and peace and rest to be in your lives again? Oh, I think so. Maybe you need to have a deep conversation with your spouse, and it begins with, I'm sorry. There's a real gain when we have contentment, a gain in religious life and a gain in our family life. When we gain life, we're doing so because we're walking with Christ through the experiences, experiencing the sufficiency of Christ in every circumstance. I was recently in the hospital with one of our members and praying over that individual and encouraging that individual he's going through a very difficult time it's one of the most difficult times in sickness that I've seen in a while and I just was wanting him to understand that God was his provider in this moment and that he didn't have to be fearful I didn't know what his life would end up being whether he would live a long and healthy prosperous life but I do know this to live is Christ, to die is gain. That you can trust Christ, you can have faith in Christ for living and in dying, and we can learn to have real joy in both of those, in the expression of life and in the expression of death, in the exercise of living and in the exercise of dying. We can learn great contentment in those, have great faith. I think that's what this text is about. If you really want the gain in life, then stop thinking about the temporary. Think about the godliness. Think about what God is doing in your life, how he's shaping you, how he's crafting you and molding you, and you move towards that. And it might be in the difficulties of life that he's doing more molding than ever before. Could you and I learn to be content in that? Could you learn to be content when you're struggling Just, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I know you're full of love. I don't know what you're doing, but I know how it ends. I need to learn contentment. Help me. Let me be one who is content. All right, then I want you to just recognize these two things that the Scripture is elevating for us, and we'll close with this. First of all, godliness is gain. So to understand that, we need to have a correct perspective, and that means that we brought nothing into this world and we're going to take nothing out of this world. Right? Naked I came into this world, naked I leave this world. So we're not going to take anything with us. So I, I need to be content because in the end, it's all done. It's all gone. There's nothing that I'm taking with me. So Lord, whatever I'm holding to, whatever I'm clinging to, it is not eternal. Let me be content with the amount that you've given to me. Let me learn contentment. 
between those two points of birth and death, you need to recognize that God is going to provide your needs. Now, the needs that God provides according to Scripture are food and shelter, food and clothing. Shelter and clothing is really rooted in the same word and can be translated in both ways. But that God is going to provide food and clothing for you or food and shelter. That's, that's where it goes. Now, our problem is we get discontent when we want a whole bunch of other stuff. Right? When we see what's available in the world and what other people have and we surf through social media and we're flipping through Instagram and we see what other people have and do and go and be and we say, oh, I want that. I'm going to remind us right now and we need to be reminded perpetually that we came into this world with nothing and we are going to leave this world with nothing. We ought to learn contentment with anything in between that God provides to us. Now, oftentimes when Kay and I are praying together for the meal, we're not just having bland food. We're having good food, like good Southern food. And I'll say, Lord, thank you for the abundance that is before us. You didn't have to provide more than our needs, but you did, and we recognize that. Thank you. Man, do I ever need that lesson more and more and more. Be content with the needs that God is providing. Now, certainly he gives us graciously, and as we recognize his grace, we're getting little insights to, to what his grace will be like in heaven, that great gift of heaven where everything is abounding and perfect. We get little flavors of that periodically. And certainly we can learn what it's like to be generous through the additional resources that God has entrusted to us. And that's part of contentment. So real contentment and abundance uh, possessions have nothing to do with one another if you really want to gain true contentment just seek godliness and trust God for his provision all right so godliness is linked with contentment and gain greed is discontent and loss look at verse verses 9 and 10 again I'll just make these three points from that greed is a loss to desire riches is going to move you to temptation and it will entrap you. A person with worldly riches is going to be tempted to live worldliness. Have you ever noticed the more treasure you have of the world, the more you want to spend the treasure on things that are not kingdom oriented? When we have resources to get what we want, when we want it, to go where we want, with whom we want, then it just might be that we do what our flesh wants. So you've got to recognize that a desire for riches is going to be a movement towards temptation and possible entrapment. That's what he's saying in verse 9 and 10. And secondly in that, he gives us a warning that a desire for riches is going to plunge you into ruin and destruction, a desire for riches. Not the fact that you have riches, but the desire for riches. I've never met a rich person who wanted to stop getting rich. And I've not met too many people who are poor who didn't want riches. So what he's saying is a desire for riches is going to plunge you into ruin and destruction. So often people who clamor for money end up with calloused hearts. They end up with hardened hearts. Their conscience gets seared because to have, oftentimes you have to do things that are counter to the scripture and to hold on and keep, you often have to do things that are not according to the scripture. What are you talking about? Well, at the basis, it is a denial of generosity. 
And so it can move us to ruin and destruction. Over time, there's less resistance and there's more living in the gray and to the point that there are places in our life that get pretty dark. So he says, be careful about the desire of riches. And a desire for riches will cause you to love money above all things. Now, money is not evil. Riches are not evil. But the love of money is a root of evil. It's that love that's the problem. So whether you love the money you have or love the money you long to have, craving money negatively impacts our hearts, our relationships, and our eternal life. And Paul's just given a warning. So here's people who are proclaiming things that are false in order that they can get rich, and he's letting them know, man, that moves you to destruction. He's already told that it leads to the destruction of the church, but it leaves them in destruction as well. Now let me just conclude with a few closing thoughts here. I encourage us to seek godliness. You'll find it on the pages of the Bible and through the effective ministry of the Holy Spirit. Seek godliness above all things. That's where your gain will be. Seek godliness. I know some people that don't have a whole lot of material stuff, but man, do they ever live the gain of life because they have godliness. I'm grateful for them, what great models they are. Understand that seeking the riches of the world will lead you away from the riches of the kingdom of heaven. And that's a foolish swap. And then finally, be on the lookout for leaders who take shortcuts, who have special insights. They are often attention-seeking, self-inclined people who will lead you astray from genuine faith and rest in Jesus Christ. They'll pack things on that you can't carry. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, first, thank you for truth. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the words that are holy that we read from your scripture. And Lord, for your spirit's work at taking them and helping us to understand them and to bring them into our thinking and to meditate on them and then exercise by your grace the power of that word in our lives. Lord, uh, be transparent in front of our folks as just praying to you that my life falls short in places that this scripture points out. And I confess that to you. And I ask that you would help me to be repentant, change the way I think about that, and help me to walk differently, to speak differently, to treasure differently. Perhaps your spirit is stirring in the hearts of some of our congregation in this place or those who are watching or listening. God, as you're working, please bring that all the way through to completion that we would have faith that you're doing a good work and what you're beginning, you will complete. And that we will be in the glorious image of Christ. Help us, God, I pray. And Lord, I want to be content. Great contentment brings great gain. I want to be a godly man. And maybe there's people in this room that are expressing the same thing. We want contentment in Christ, trust in him, and walking in his way. Help us, Lord, I pray, to do that very thing, to deny those things that are counter to your word, 
to deny the treasure, to see it as invaluable as it is in regards to eternity and treasure what you treasure. We thank you for the luxurious gift of faith and life in Jesus. And we pray in that we will be content. In the name of Christ,